Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. I just was getting more and more antsy as, as we moved through. And I could, you know, I was watching who used the hand sanitizer when they got in and who didn't. Hey, Nerdcasters. This is Christina. People were asking the question, should I vote, should I not vote? They say there are only two constants in life, and that's death and taxes. But elections have to be up there pretty close, right? But imagine there's a global health crisis and there's a primary election going on in your state, say, Illinois. And your state has decided not to cancel it. Going in to vote, I had done, I had made all these um, maybe crazy precautions, but I had brought my own pen. I was ready to not touch anything. And then it was a touchscreen voting booth. And on the one hand, you've got people telling you to stay home and stay away from people. But on the other hand, this is your only chance, maybe for years, to, to vote on some of the issues you care about. You know, many have said that uh, that Biden is a foregone conclusion at this point, but I am a Bernie supporter, and I felt like it was an important last attempt to try to get someone more progressive in that office. Um, and then in Illinois, we had also a lot of local things to vote for, several judicial positions, just judges and also county clerk and state attorney. It felt like there were just too many small things at stake to miss it. Christina did get her I Voted bracelet. And I was really nervous about if I should take it and didn't know who had touched it. But I did take it and I did put it on, but I did hand sanitize right afterwards. <laughs> and I think we're all feeling right now all the many, many ways in which the coronavirus has upended daily life. I am, for example, recording this under a blanket in my living room. Today, we're going to talk about specifically how coronavirus has upended political life from the campaign trail to the White House to the halls of Congress. I'm your host, Scott Bland. So, first up, elections. More than 800 election judges, many of them elderly and highly at risk, refused to participate in Tuesday's election. Concerns about the coronavirus did impact in-person voting. Low turnout. Ohio abruptly canceled its primary due to the coronavirus pandemic. We have Politico reporter Zach Montalaro on the line. And he's going to walk us through a little bit. So four states were supposed to have primaries on Tuesday, Florida, Illinois, Ohio, and Arizona. But only three of them went on as planned. Actually, Ohio ended up canceling its primary at the last minute in a kind of convoluted fashion. Basically, Ohio's governor said earlier on Monday, hey, I don't think we should have a primary. It's not safe. Public health experts say it aren't safe. The, the White House is saying that no more than 10 people should gather at once. Obviously, that's not the case with elections. I don't think we should have a primary. But I don't have the authority to do this myself. He said, so we're going to back a court case. A court in the state, a pretty low-level court from my understanding as well, too, said it's too late to postpone the primaries. I'm not going to do this. And then we had radio silence for a couple hours until late, late Monday evening. I think it was about 11 o'clock East Coast time where the governor of Ohio uh, announced that his uh, top public health official will be shutting polling places due to a health emergency. And notice what I said there, too, that they're shutting polling places. They were not actually postponing the election. 
So there was functionally no primary on Tuesday because polling places were closed. People could not actually show up if they wanted to. And right now, the people in Ohio are trying to figure out basically what comes next. The Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, who was in on this whole thing, he was, you know, working with the governor um, to try to postpone the primaries initially through the court, um, announced that the primary will be held on June 2nd, that it was postponed to June 2nd. But right now, there's a lawsuit from the state Democratic Party saying, you know, you don't have the authority to do that. And also the state legislature, which is set to meet next week, is also going to try to decide when the primary should be. And, and of course, you know, the, the elections that did take place on Tuesday in Illinois and Florida and Arizona, I, I, you know, I think certainly there are people who did not show up to vote because of concerns about maintaining social distancing while, while also exercising your civic duty. And, and the Ohio example... Uh, is really troubling, right? Because you can understand the public health imperative, right? You can you can understand the argument for for not opening the polls. At, at the same time, I, I don't think there's anything that better illustrates what a big problem the coronavirus is causing just at, at a civic level. Yeah, it's really a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. I don't think anyone in Ohio is acting out of bad faith, certainly. And they say, look, we were vindicated. Look what happened in Illinois. The other two states... Um, Uh, Florida and Arizona had a lot of mail voting. So a lot of it went on as scheduled. But even in Illinois, in the people who tried to vote in Florida, Arizona the day of, there was just chaos would be a a polite way to describe what happened. You know, there was polling places that had to be moved because they were in high risk locations like nursing homes. Some polling places were just shuttered entirely because election officials, those people on the ground who, you know, normally administer the elections, the little old lady who checks you in just didn't show up out of concern for her health. You know, some places were promised uh, they were promised, you know, sanitary equipment, you know, stuff to wipe down machines, all that stuff didn't show up. So it, it was just it's chaos. Uh, you know, the states after Tuesday, after this past Tuesday, have more time to prepare, certainly. But, you know, it was really a no win situation for the people on Tuesday. And, and I, you know, I don't think anyone faults um, Governor DeWine, the governor of Ohio, for doing what he did, closing the polls. It's just the process in which it closed it was just such a difficult and unprecedented situation, basically. Other states down the line in the calendar have a little more time to act, and we're seeing a number of them act so far, choosing to delay, postpone in in a little bit of a less extra-legal fashion. What, what states have moved so far? So far, we've seen five states reschedule their primaries. Georgia, which was supposed to vote next week, is rescheduled, and they were joined by Louisiana, Kentucky, and Maryland, and we're also counting Ohio in that five Puerto Rico will probably join that group later this week, and other states are talking about it as well. And so now the the question becomes what these states are hoping to do about this by postponing, right? Because, you know, I think uh, you you mentioned earlier Georgia postponed till mid-May, right? And they moved from mid-March to mid-May. Now, you know, I don't think we have official guidance about that sort of thing yet, but I think basically that mid-May is just on the edge of the the current CDC window for, um, you know, restricting large gatherings, right? And so there's certainly a chance that 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 by the time mid-May rolls around, or or whenever these elections are rescheduled, by the time it rolls around, these social distancing imperatives are still going to be in place. So what are states talking about and doing? Uh, to try and still hold their primaries later on, but prepare to do them differently in order to to keep people from gathering in the same room. So basically, I think I think what this move really counts to right now is to give states more time to figure out what the heck they're going to do. Um, all these states are trying to kick the date back, and you know, God willing, we will be able to have gatherings of more than ten people at that point. But it's very possible, if not likely, that we won't be. 
So what these states are trying to do is at least give them more time to prepare. And what they're trying to prepare with is potentially a, a drastic expansion of mail-in voting. That's when you get a ballot in the mail, you fill it out, you send it back, and boom, you're done. Right now, um, 33 states in the District of Columbia allow some level of mail-in voting to the entire population. That's either conducting the election entirely by mail, which is something states like Washington and Oregon do, or allowing for no excuse absentee voting, meaning you don't need a reason to vote absentee. You can just say, I would like to not show up on election day, and you can send a uh, ballot back in. So, But that's really where it's looking to expand right now is some states are looking to do all mail-in voting. Something I'm going to be watching really closely is there's still an election scheduled in Maryland for the end of April for that original primary date is a um, special election in Maryland's 7th district. That's going to be conducted entirely by mail. It'll be a really interesting experiment to watch to see how states conduct entirely by mail elections when they didn't quite have the infrastructure set up beforehand. And other states are at a minimum looking to expand absentee voting, either getting rid of an excuse saying anyone can vote absentee if they want to, or adding the coronavirus as an excuse, basically, that'll let them let anybody who feels unsafe going to the polls because of the coronavirus vote absentee. It sounds like what we're discovering is that moving an election to mail sounds very simple when you say it out loud, and there's and there's a little bit more to it. Yeah, it's not quite as easy as just snapping your fingers saying, okay, let's mail them all in. There's a lot, a lot of hurdles you have to overcome to do that. And even people who are pushing pretty hardly for mail-in voting acknowledge that and are, are in fact, probably more upfront about these problems because they don't want the system to fail. Earlier this week, I talked with Dale Ho, who works at the ACLU's Voting Right Project, and he laid them out for me, a couple of them. Just a couple of the problems that he sees with a quick expansion is that some states just simply don't have the capacity to do it. If you pick a state, for example, that right now doesn't see a lot of mail-in balloting because they have to have an excuse to vote absentee, you can't just flip a switch and expect the election system to be able to take in all these ballots all at once and count them on time. Um, other problems that he raised, and uh, to be clear, uh, Dale supports mail-in voting. He supports, supports the expansion of it, supports the expansion of absentee voting as well, too. Other things could be, you know, allowing people to open ballots and count ballots before Election Day. That's a big thing, too. Um, You know, it's one of the reasons why it takes so long to get results in some states is that they don't let even if they get the ballots in the mail early, the election officials get the ballots from people early. Some of them can't open them till Election Day to start counting. Um, And the third one he raised that I thought was interesting is just the general expectation of the public and the media and us that we have results at election night. Think about it, right? Every election night, you know, CNN has Wolf Blitzer in front of a screen yelling projection, projection, and we're all excitedly (laughs) tuned in. In mail-in states, that might not necessarily be the case. Think about California. California voted on Super Tuesday for its primary. And while the uh, presidential primary was called, some of those closer House races weren't called yet because ballots are still being counted. Takes time. Yeah. Yeah. It takes time to count these ballots. So managing expectations of the public and of the media to say, hey, we might not have results from this primary or from this general election night of, and that's okay. That's a big hurdle that that we need to overcome if we're going to switch to a mail-in system. And we've got more Nerdcast coming up for you in a second, but we'll be back after a quick message. The problem with the news right now? It's everywhere. And each day, it can feel like we're all just mindlessly scrolling. That's where Slate's What Next comes in. This short daily podcast is here to help you make sense of things. From fleshing out new angles to uncovering stories that have been largely unreported, host Mary Harris guides listeners through complex topics with ease, asking the right questions and drawing out new information from her guests in the process. When the news feels overwhelming, we're here to help you answer. What next? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
And now we head over to the White House to talk to Politico White House reporter Nancy Cook. Basically, I've been like writing uh, stories about like the biggest economic stimulus package in this country's history while also like handing out fruit snacks and doing Legos. <laughs> and we've also talked about a stimulus package to the American worker. Uh, you can think of this as something like business interruption payments for the American workers. Thank you. Do you have any questions for the Secretary of the Treasury? You know, for the White House, the response, the, the fact that the America still doesn't have enough tests and we don't know the full number of people infected is probably, you know, the biggest storyline. And then the second biggest is really the free fall in the economy and just America is shutting down. You know, businesses are shutting down, restaurants are shutting down, schools are shutting down. And the Trump administration is working overtime to basically try to offset some of that and say that, yes, things need to be shut down while while this pandemic spreads, but um, they're trying to do things to basically make it so that businesses don't completely lay off all their employees and they can sort of survive the cash crunch of the next few weeks. And it's a fascinating moment because Republicans, you know, poo-pooed so much of the spending following the global financial crisis in 2008. And they were very critical of the bailout of um, industries back then. But now the Trump administration basically each day just ups the ante of the amount of money that they're going to spend to help out the economy. And this week, they are negotiating the third economic stimulus package. Trump now has latched onto the idea of sending checks directly to Americans um, you know, they're going to bail out the airline industries in the form of loans and loan guarantees. And then what I'm following is that there is basically this other pot of money, $150 billion that they're talking about that will help other industries that are affected by the downturn in the economy because of the spread of the coronavirus. And that's things like hotels and the cruise industry. And, and really, there's very fierce lobbying going on right now for who's going to access that money. And the Senate has said that it wants to act on this by the end of the week. So you're seeing like huge amounts of money potentially going out the door in a very short period of time, huge lobbying around the clock. And basically officials from the Treasury Department and top economic officials out of the White House are trying to make these decisions with top Republican lawmakers on the Hill really in record time. And they have to have they have to make it amenable enough to Democrats to want to sign on to. And Democrats have their whole other list of ideas about what this should look like. And so it's just a huge amount of money that's going to be spent. And Nancy, you've written about how they're trying to figure out where all this money is going to get funneled. Right. So lobbyists, I worked over this weekend and lobbyists were just on back to back calls, you know, trying to get in touch with people at Treasury, trying to get in touch with people at the administration you know, reaching out to members on Capitol Hill to let them know. With the airline money, for instance, you know, the government has said, yes, we want to bail out the airlines. But I talked to one lobbyist who says, well, don't forget about the airports, you know, and the other businesses associated with the airlines. So basically, all these businesses across the board are seeing a downturn in business, and everyone wants a piece of that pie. And lastly, Nerdcasters, let's head over to Congress. And that's the body holding the purse strings for all this money that we're talking about to help us through the coronavirus crisis. And so to tell us what's going on in Congress, we've got Politico's Congress editor. Okay, we're on. Ben Weil. I'm set up on our dining room table, got the computer, and also the baby monitor, because we just put our kid down for a nap. Same here. So, you know, while you're working from home, you know, lawmakers and reporters alike are kind of having to deal with kind of dueling imperatives here of social distancing and um, covering the massive government response 
and in the case of the lawmakers, like creating the massive government response to the coronavirus crisis. Right. So, you know, number one, our priority is to keep our reporters healthy and safe and try to minimize any risk possible to them. And next is, you know, we need to do our job. And Congress is in the middle of a, an historic crisis, um, and it's our job to cover it. So uh, we've got reporters mostly working remotely. Um, at the moment, we have one person on the Hill. The, the nice thing about our reporters is, you know, they're so plugged in to leadership and key lawmakers and aides. You know, they're getting most of their scoops and tidbits um, through email and phone and, and text and whatnot. And so they don't, you know, it's not a total hindrance to not be on the Hill. Um, at the moment, only half of Congress is there anyway. The Senate is in, uh, the House is currently on recess, and uh, House leaders just announced a few minutes ago that they're not going to return until the next stimulus package is ready for a vote, because they don't want people coming up on Hill any earlier than they have to. Even with the, the House out, with the Senate still there, what are the senators doing in terms of staff? Are they mostly keeping their staff off the Hill, or what, what are they doing? Well, each senator and each uh, office is, is taking it differently, approaching it differently. That's one of the interesting things about Capitol Hill, and maybe one of the downsides. There's no real central authority. Every office uh, is its own. Every Senate office, every House office is their own um, almost small business, you know, and they have to make decisions for what's best for them. And different people can decide different things. So we have a, a bunch of Senate offices have staff working remotely. Um, others are working, you know, like normal, although I'm sure everyone's trying to practice social distancing and um, keep their, 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 give people some space as much as they can. You know, having kind of set the stage there, Ben, can you take us through what's going on on the Hill right now? And, and it's, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty complicated because there are multiple different stimulus bills trying to tackle different pieces of the government response to coronavirus. And, you know, can, can you break it down a little bit? Yeah. So Congress is, is, is doing a lot right now. The economy is in real trouble. Millions of people's lives are, from a health perspective, at risk. So there's a lot of balls up in the air. So earlier this month, they passed what we're calling phase one, um, which was about $8 billion of, uh, of emergency spending to help strengthen the public health system. Um, that's really to kind of combat the virus itself and give uh, agencies and others the tools to try to deal with the virus. Uh, phase two was just passed by the Senate yesterday. Um, the House worked all night, last Friday night into Saturday, um, passed a bill, what we're calling phase two, um, which the Senate passed yesterday, which is about $100 billion um, over a decade. And that's focused on helping some of the most vulnerable people and people immediately affected by this crisis. So um, emergency food assistance to make sure people have food stamps and food banks are filled. Uh, paid sick leave for some workers who are affected by um, the crisis, maybe the virus. Maybe they have the virus or they need to be self-quarantined or they need to stay at home um, to help others who are sick. So some paid sick leave there. And now we're in the middle of phase three, and this is going to be the biggest one yet. Um, we're talking probably over a trillion dollars, uh, and there's going to be a few components. One is simply sending emergency checks, making sure people are getting money to make sure they can pay rent um, and buy, buy groceries and whatnot. Uh, there's also going to be assistance for small businesses uh, who are struggling, you know, restaurants, others, no one's going in there right now. And so the government wants to give them um, 
loans but could be grants to to keep them afloat. And then perhaps the most contentious part is there is going to be some sort of assistance to um, broader industries, you know, particularly airlines, let's say. No one's flying right now, and the airline industry is warning of dire consequences if they don't get government help and quickly. Uh, and so they're crafting legislation that will also um, provide assistance to those industries. So where we are in that is the Senate. Uh, Republicans are starting to uh, gather that package together. They hope to unveil text today. Uh, and then McConnell is going to talk to Chuck Schumer, uh, the Democratic leader in the Senate, and make sure they can get a deal because they need 60 votes in the Senate to pass anything. So it has to be bipartisan. Chuck Schumer is also working closely with Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic House Speaker, because um, whatever the Senate passes, the House is going to have to pass too. So a lot, of, a lot of balls up in the air. Secretary of the Treasury Stephen Mnuchin was on the Hill this week. Uh, so the Trump administration is involved in this. Um, but Congress is moving very rapidly on a, uh, an extraordinarily uh, large uh, rescue package. Ben, I'm curious, when, when you say they're working rapidly, I mean, are, are we, it, it sounds essentially considering the size of, of especially the economic relief package that's being discussed, that we're, we're talking about basically unprecedented speed. I think that's right. You know, if you think back to the 2008 financial crisis, um, Congress moved with extraordinary speed there too um, to pass you know, essentially a $700 billion uh, rescue package for Wall Street and the financial industry. Um, so this is already going to be bigger in terms of money. Um, speed arguably is faster, um, certainly not any slower. Uh, and the other thing is, it's just, it's, that was relatively, that was about one, that was mostly like one package, one piece of legislation. We're talking about a series of major bills that are having to move now. So it is quite extraordinary. There are kind of two groups of lawmakers here, one from both parties and one, you know, in the Republican Party that that were, first of all, there's a group that was actually there in 2007, 2008, and presumably not just remembers, but learned lessons from the government response to, to kind of the last major economic crisis. And, you know, including people in leadership, a lot of the same faces. You've got uh, Nancy Pelosi as speaker. You've got Mitch McConnell. Um, and then you've got a, a, a fairly large group of Republican uh, senators who were elected in 2010 in response to uh, Tea Party activism around, among other things, the, the stimulus and, and the feeling that the stimulus was over large and, and bloated in response to the last economic crisis. And so I'm, I'm curious how how those groups are kind of, how that experience is, is playing into what we're seeing this time. Yeah, you know, if you look back to the stimulus um, that President Barack Obama pushed through, they had, if not, if not zero, virtually zero Republicans in the House back that bill. Um, they they uh, opposed it, you know, from a very hard line and early perspective um, you're not seeing that from Nancy Pelosi's Democrats now. Um, and then in, in the Senate, you know, the, the Senate has always been a bit more bipartisan in part because you need 60 votes. Um, but, you know, but I think the, there are certainly lessons that are reverberating. Um, you know, people are wary of being seen as supporting a bailout. You know, no one's trying to use the B word. This is, uh, assistance, you know, and maybe some, uh, targeted assistance or some sort of rescue, um, 
I will say this. One thing that lawmakers have said, which does seem fair, is that this, this rescue package is different um, than a regular bailout from like the 2008 uh, crisis, is that in 2008, Wall Street essentially caused the crisis, and th- not essentially, Wall Street caused the crisis and then asked for help. You know, the airline industry, hotels, they didn't cause the coronavirus. So when Republicans say, well, that was a bailout that I couldn't stand by, this is a bailout, you know, or a rescue package that I can get behind. I, I do understand, I think there's some slightly different um, and fair reasoning. Got it. So it, it sounds like the parties are, are, are largely going to be able to work together, although I, I think, it, you know, it sounds like there isn't final agreement on exactly what the size of the final package is going to be, how, you know, what, what kind of financial assistance rank and file citizens will get, that sort of thing. No, and th- there is already some partisan bickering. Um, mm. Nancy, Nancy Pelosi has said we should make this a, a discussion where the four party leaders, you know, the top uh, Republican and Democrat in the Senate and in the House, get together and talk this through. McConnell has said, no, I don't want to deal with you, Nancy. I'm just going to talk to Chuck over here. Okay. Um, so there is some differences there. And I think um, Democrats and Republicans do see... Um, you know, what the rescue package should look like differently. The question is, can they get an agreement? I think they will get an agreement because the stakes are so high. Um, You know, you see the markets just falling day after day and unemployment is going to spike. We're seeing already. Um, So I think there will be some sort of deal, but it's going to be messy. It's going to be an interesting few days. Ben Weil, literally our kitchen table correspondent here on the Nerdcast today. Thank you very much for taking the time. Happy to be here. All right, that's our show this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Anand. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Bill Cookman is our illustrator. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with you next week.